You can't turn on the TV without seeing one of those ads about vaginal mesh and the implications of problems in the genital pelvic region. And a lot of concern has been voiced by patients, and they are coming into their gynecologists, urogynecologists in droves, concerned about some of the surgeries that they may have had and how it's being implicated in terms of the overall sexual health and general health. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman, host of Sexual Health, General Health, and joining me today is Sherelle Iglesia. Sherelle, I know you have a multitude of titles, and I don't want to miss out on them, so can you do the audience a huge favor and and let us know of all your titles, please? Sure. Michael, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. I am the director of the section of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at MedStar Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., and I'm a professor in the departments of OBGYN and urology at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And Sherelle, I know you're, you're also very involved in ACOG, and you also have spent some time at the FDA, and today we're going to talk about the meshed-up vagina, <clears throat> and I know it's a topic near and dear to your heart because you see these patients day in and day out. What are some of the concerns that you have, and what are some of the myths that you're seeing as comparatively to some of the media hysteria in terms of mesh and sexual function? I think the biggest concern that my patients have are wondering whether or not when they had pelvic reconstructive surgery, one of the bad meshes was placed for that surgery. So just to give a little background, mesh was cleared in 2004. To clear a product at the FDA, you have to find a product that's similar to it. So the similar product had been hernia mesh and sling meshes. Now, once this product was approved for prolapse surgery, then that was in 2004. By 2006 or 7, about a third of prolapse surgeries involved mesh, whether it be placed vaginally or abdominally. What's happened since a lot of the products were cleared, and at one point there were up to 40 vaginal mesh products that were available in the United States. Soon after the data started coming out, we started uh, noticing complications, and some of it was reported on the FDA database called the MOD database, which then set up a review panel for which I was on, the OBGYN devices panel for the FDA, and that met in 2011. Once we reviewed the world's literature on everything, including a trial that we did at MedStar, and it was a multi-center trial with Stanford and Yale. We halted this trial because we found that 15% of our patients were having complications, the most common of which was the extrusion or exposure of the mesh so that partners could feel it or there would be like a, a discharge. And we stopped in 2009 using this product. So that kind of triggered others who were also doing comparison studies. Similar findings were coming out of Scandinavian countries and France. So the panel met in September 2011 and said that um, we need more data. So the products were not recalled, um, but orders were issued that more follow-up, three-year follow-up data was needed. And so when these orders were issued, then the companies had to then be able to give that data to the FDA for review. And the data had to include but patients, the patient-centered outcomes. So there, again, as I said, there were 40 companies, and 35 of them stopped making it. So once the companies ceased manufacturing it and the orders were issued, 
then all these class action lawsuits um, came out. To what extent does the surgeon play a role in this? And I know that yeah. very often we're seeing both urologists, urogynecologists, and even the run-of-the-mill generalists doing these procedures. Mm -hmm. And how would you counsel a woman who is coming in for a consult concerning what role does a surgeon have in terms of better outcomes with this kind of procedure? Well, sir, clearly a surgeon has a, a factor in terms of training, getting adequate training that's specific to each device, and in patient selection. And then there's always the sort of intangible issue in terms of surgical judgment. But what we what we have learned is that, you know, this product isn't for everybody. This product, the use of vaginal mesh should probably be limited to prolapse that mostly involves the bladder and more likely in recurrences and more in an advanced prolapse. But once this product was cleared in 2004, and I said by 2006, you know, there was a, a lot of people using this. And maybe some of it was surgeon factors in terms of maybe not having the full skill set. I mean, I, I certainly don't think that taking a weekend course <laughs> is enough. So some of it may be the product itself. Is the mesh too heavy? Is the, was the mesh too large? And um, the design. So what would, you, what would you counsel a woman in terms of, are there other alternatives? I know that yeah. there are a lot of new devices out for urinary incontinence, and they're all claiming 100% okay. guaranteed. So well, what well, would be your advice to well, these women? I, I think that obviously women should impair themselves, and when you're meeting face-to-face -face with a surgeon and they offer surgery, I mean, you should definitely ask for what the alternatives are. <laughs> and if even if there's non-surgical alternatives with exercise, weight loss, devices like a pessary, or surgery that does not involve mesh, or surgery that um, and does not involve vaginal mesh, and or surgery that involves laparoscopic or the mini incisions that may involve abdominally placed mesh, which is not a part of the whole mesh controversy. I want to clarify that because I think that a lot of people call, like, Dr. Glazer, you, you put mesh in me, and it was a sling mesh. And a sling mesh is just like a little piece of scotch tape wide type of mesh versus the vaginal mesh for plugs, which can be as big as a sheet of paper or definitely bigger than an index card. So there's definite differences. And I think that if a doctor also recommends mesh, you should ask why. Ask how many she or he has performed what kind of outcome data does he have um, or she have, and what product. I, it's amazing to me how patients don't even know what was put in or if mesh was put in or not. Right. And get their, sometimes getting their op report in hand is also an important concept. Right, right. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Critchman. I'm here with Dr. Sherelle Iglesia. We're talking about the meshed-up vagina and how mesh has certainly have has implications on overall health and also on sexuality per se. Um, what would you say to a woman who is not having symptoms but comes in and is asking to have her mesh removed? Do you ever see those kind of consults? Oh, yeah, they're really concerned. Or, you know, maybe they're not really symptomatic now, but they're worried about what happens as you get into menopause. Is this, is this going to end up being rejected? Can my partner feel it? 
it does have to bring up a conversation in terms of making sure the vagina is well estrogenized because once the lining gets thinner, that mesh may become more of a problem. And you should get inspected to make sure that there aren't any particular fibers that are poking through. But certainly the pain is, you know, after the mesh exposure, which is I don't know, double digits, 10%. We found 15% on our trial, but I think conservative, 6 to 10% is what most people quote nowadays. So, you know, that is something that obviously that wouldn't be a great thing in terms of discharge or a partner potentially feeling this. But sometimes there are exposures and the patients aren't symptomatic, and we can just watch it. Sometimes local estrogen can help. But, you know, if the mesh erodes into an erosion, not just an exposure, into the bladder or the rectum, that's a bigger problem because it can lead to stones, urinary tract infections. But for pain, you know, ultrasound studies have shown that, and some basic science work, have shown that this mesh, which is typically polypropylene, can contract. And so what happens is, with time, as there's scar tissue from around the mesh, there can be up to a 50% contraction in the size of the mesh, which goes from a sheet of paper down to, you know, the index card. So. If that's doing that, then there's more scarring and fibrosis that can occur and that can lead to pain. And so many of the patients that I see are for the pain and we try biofeedback and physical therapy and local estrogen use, sometimes some pain blocks, pain medication, but many times we're still having to remove the mesh. Right, and I think it's encouraging to let women know that there are interventions that can certainly help in terms of alleviating some of the painful intercourse. And it's also important to remember that not all painful intercourse is related to the mesh and that they need an appropriate evaluation. There could be things like dryness. There could be other factors that are contributing. muscle factors, uh, lining issues, vulvar issues and you don't necessarily need to have that mesh taken out. Again, we're not really mostly talking about the sling mesh, we're talking about the mesh placed vaginally for prolapse, and there's where we get, uh, people get so confused. And some people are being approached by, you know, you had that mesh put in, you know there's been class action lawsuits, you should see your doctor about it, but if you're worried about it, I mean, I think you should know what's being put in your body. But, you know, some people may not feel comfortable going to the same doctor. I would say, you know, seeing a specialist in, in female pelvic medicine reconstructive surgery, whether it be a urogynecologist or a female urologist, but someone who does high volume reconstructive surgery in this particular situation for complications would be the best option. And I think you make a very good point. I mean, there is a new field, pelvic reconstructive surgery. There are specialists that are available. Board um, certification. And a whole detailed list of what they need to do and accomplish in order to achieve that certification. And I know you and I ascribe to the same concept that a good clinician is never afraid of a second opinion. And I think the time of you know, the paternalism of just listening mm-hmm. to the clinician and just taking it point blank is over. And I think that we need to empower women. You know, this is going to become more and more of an issue as we see baby boomers getting older and urinary incontinence are significant issues. 50% by the time they're 80. So it's one out of three right now. But in your 40s and 50s, probably 25%, 60s or 70, 33. And by the time you're 80, 50% have a pelvic floor disorder, urinary incontinence or prolapse. Right. And that's not an insignificant number as we grow older, 
we certainly want our general health to improve and we want our sexual health to be maintained and certainly urinary incontinence has impact not only on sexual function but also social obligation and commitments and women withdraw and they may have changes in mood and what have you so it's certainly a very important issue and will become more important as we see the population get older Sherelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Unfortunately, we've ran out of time, but this topic is uh, so important to discuss in terms of MESH and its implications on overall general health and sexual health. I'm Dr. Michael Critchman. You've been listening to Sexual Health, General Health on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com slash sexualmedicine to download this segment as well as others in this series. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much, Sherelle, for taking the time out of your busy schedule here at ACOG to talk to us about such an important topic. It's always a pleasure to see you and learn about the new things that you're doing and exploring in terms of helping women uh, be empowered and take control over their lives. Thanks again, Cheryl. You're very welcome, Michael.